0: Welcome to this latest installment of The Auditorium. For anyone who's out there that's single and looking, you may know firsthand how hard it is to find love nowadays. Yet for some men in society, attracting women isn't a problem at all. Many are rapists, others are mass murderers, and some are serial killers. Regardless, there really seems to be no shortage of women who fall in love, for various reasons, with men who commit murder and remain incarcerated for those crimes. That is our subject for today. So without any further ado, here follows, in random order, three cases of murderers who, could be said, have found left behind bars. FYI, sometimes these episodes deal with disturbing and graphic material. So as always, discretion is advised. Number one, Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy sat there calmly, silently as the guilty verdict was read. The jury had taken 6 hours to decide that the former law student was guilty of the strangulation murders of two Florida coeds and guilty of the attempted murder of three other young women. Minutes before the verdict, Ted Bundy is undoubtedly one of America's most notorious serial killers. In the media, Bundy was portrayed as charming, charismatic, intelligent, well-educated, well-spoken, and even was referred to on a repeated basis as a strikingly handsome man. So on paper, it could be said that Bundy would probably appear quite the catch to a number of amorous young ladies out there. There is only one problem with all of this, however. You see, Bundy was a serial killer and a necrophile. His sexual arousal was intimately interconnected with sadistic fantasies of torture, rape, and violence. It was, in a matter of speaking, the only way he could get off. The more disgusting the crime scene, the more excited Bundy would get. Once apprehended, Bundy vehemently denied the crimes he was accused of until finally, he would confess to 30 homicides, which spanned seven states and four years. And he suspected that Bundy's true victim toll is in fact much higher. What you will need to recall about Bundy. Bundy didn't only just kill his victims. He tied them up. He bound them, gagged them, strangled them, and tortured them. He raped them. He, then he dismembered them and raped them again. He decapitated at least 12 of his victims. And it's said that he would keep their heads at his apartment to serve as arousing souvenirs. But these details are only relevant to the case insofar as one would think that, in knowing even a fraction of these facts, a rational, intelligent, everyday woman would stay as physically far from this man as possible. You would think that. But instead, the groupies that Bundy was able to amass is astonishing. During Bundy's trial, women would come to gawk and swoon and make googly eyes at the tall, dark, and handsome would-be lawyer turned sadistic rapist and killer who had stolen their girlish hearts. Since it's said that Bundy had a special type, almost all of Bundy's victims wore their hair long, dark, and parted down the middle. Some of Bundy's loyal fangirls made sure to come with their hair styled in identical fashion to those of his victims. Some even dyed their hair to suit this purpose. Not only did the troves of women travel far and wide to attend Bundy's trial, but they also wrote him innumerable piles of letters professing their love to him and whatnot. Every time he turns around, I kind of get that feeling, oh no, you know? <laughs> going to get me next. But yet you're fascinated by him. Very, very. One particularly prolific group known as the Bundy Files actively lobbied for Bundy's release from prison. I'm not afraid of him. He just doesn't look like the type to kill somebody. You try to imagine yourself in his place and to see how he's feeling looking at the pillows with bloodstains and everything if he really did it or not. One of the most well-known of Bundy's admirers was Carol Ann Boone, a woman who relocated all the way from Washington to Florida to be near Bundy during his trials. Boone would end up actually marrying Bundy while he was incarcerated. Will you marry me? Yes. And I do hereby marry you. And even finding a way around the prison's prohibition of conjugal visits to mother Bundy's child. We kept looking out the window. There's a black guard. to the thrill night. After the first day In more recent times, it is reported that teenage girls continue to to worship the notorious hunk of a necrophile, some such girls stating that they wish Bundy was still alive now so that they could date him. Furthermore, it's said that a disturbing trend on TikTok has emerged in which people dress up and stage scenes wherein they pretend to be his victim or in some cases even him. All of that said, Bundy's story is just one out of many crazy tales of fangirls as you're about to hear. Number two, James Holmes. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. oh y'all can't see this, but home. Around that time that James Holmes, when he was still somehow relevant news, I recall that he would show an interviewer the inside of his jail cell, where above his bed, he'd almost filled the space with a collage made out of the photos, some provocative and others including photos of children as well, which random strange women would send to him along with their letters. As a quick reminder for quite a few of you who may need help putting a name to a face, James Holmes was the young neuroscience student turned killing machine. More specifically, James was still fresh from graduating with his bachelor's, when on July 12th, 2012, he would open fire on a packed movie theater at the midnight premiere of the new Batman movie in the otherwise quiet and uneventful Aurora, Colorado. As James had confessed, both prior to the incident and afterward, he had been having murderous thoughts for a while. In fact, his delusionally driven thoughts bothered him enough that he even tried to seek help from a school counselor prior to the shootings, help which he would evidently not receive. Thus, in his then delusional mind, he felt like he had no choice but to carry through with his quote-unquote mission, as he would later refer to it during a taped extended interview with a psychologist. To carry out his mission, Holmes stockpiled several different types of guns, plus ammo, and any other accessories he would need. He took the murder scene into careful consideration, one of his main criteria being that he wanted easy access to as many vulnerable victims as possible. Prior to the crime, Holmes booby-trapped his apartment with explosives and turned up the music full blast, hoping this would serve as some sort of distraction for town officials, and he headed off to the premiere at the local Century Theater. Long story short, James Holmes' claim to fame in this life is that he is a mass murderer, At the movie premiere, he managed to kill a total of 12 people and cause injuries to about 70 others. Although clearly, James did suffer from some type of delusional disorder, which evidently severely impacted his life, the court would rule that he did not meet the standards for an insanity defense insofar as the term is recognized legally in a court of law. James would stand trial for the crimes, and he would subsequently be sentenced to life behind bars. I think it's probably safe to conclude that most quote unquote normal people would look at this story and think, okay, this young man did all these atrocious things. I don't care how attractive or good looking he turns out to be in my mind. There's just still no way I could feel anything but disgust, sorrow, and anger toward this individual. And yet, as always, it seems, the world has its group of individuals who are able to see past all of that and love James just the way he is, dangerous to society or not. In the aftermath of the Century Theater slayings, James had his own following of fangirls. One particular group of fangirls cleverly referred to themselves as the Homies. It is said that they would gather mainly on Tumblr to talk about the case and, of course, their beloved boy toy, mass murderer James Holmes. Following Holmes's conviction, the Arapaho District Attorney's Office would scan quote-unquote thousands of letters that had been written to mass murderer Holmes. Some, they said, were drenched in perfume or smeared with lipstick. And perhaps it's most apt to conclude our summary of the James Holmes story by looking at some of his groupies putting things in their own words. So accordingly, here are just a few quotes taken directly and verbatim from the now-released letters that Holmes received in the months following the slayings. "'I love you,' writes one girl. Another fangirl writes, "'I can't believe your curls are gone. I liked them. I liked a lot about your appearance. You're handsome.'" A third groupie writes such cringeworthy prose that it's not easy to even read. As per her letter, quote, You are my darling, sweet as a dove in the morning dew, like a blast of sunlight in my soul. Thank you, our God reigns, end quote. The letter was also full of, quote, unquote, advice for James regarding how to get off, which included but was not limited to pretending that someone else had entered his apartment and had drugged him. Perhaps most unsettling is that this woman had included photos of herself and her children along with the letter. I hope this woman, whomever she is, does make the decision to seek out some help of her own. In the next letter, a woman declares, you are mysterious and I'm drawn to that. It is unclear as to whether, following James's marked weight gain and overall drastic change in appearance, the fangirls still continue to meet, or else whether their little group has since dissolved, but it would be interesting to find out. Number three, Mark David Chapman. Sometimes the love of one can be enough. As we're about to learn from the story of Mark David Chapman, known to some others, as just the guy who killed John Lennon. Prior to the killing, which would go on to earn Chapman life in prison with possible parole after 20 years, Chapman was, believe it or not, initially a huge fan of the Beatles and of John Lennon. So how could this tale have taken such a tragic turn? Unfortunately, Chapman's paranoid delusions, an increasingly psychotic state, took a turn for the worse when he began experiencing a number of bizarre hallucinations and delusions. Formerly Chapman's idol, Lennon would soon make it to the top of Chapman's hit list, quite literally. Chapman later, in fact, claimed that his hit list was a long one, and that Lennon simply seemed the most convenient at the time. Whether or not this is true, something seems to have snapped in Chapman when he read Lennon proclaim that the Beatles were, quote, more popular than Jesus now, end quote. Considering himself a devout Christian, the statement really got Chapman incensed, and the more Chapman allowed himself to dwell on Lennon's statements concerning this, which he did, the more angry he became and the more determined he became to assassinate John Lennon. Prior to going through with it, however, Chapman would return home where he would tell his newlywed wife about his plan to murder John Lennon. The wife, named Gloria Abe, did not call the authorities. She later claimed that she believed Chapman had changed his mind and that he decided not to go through with the plot for her this, of course, would turn out to be not true. At the end of 1980, Chapman would once again return to New York City under the pretense of needing a little bit more time away to clear his head. But on December 8th, Chapman would do the unthinkable. As Lennon would enter the archway of his apartment at the Dakota, Chapman would emerge and standing just several yards away, he'd proceed to fire five shots from his charter arms undercover 38 Special Revolver into Mr. John Lennon. Chapman missed once, but managed to hit Lennon four times in the back. Following this fiasco, Chapman did not immediately flee the scene as many would expect, but rather he remained there for a while, reading J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye. This act alone is perhaps a testament to Chapman's abnormal state of mind at the time. That is, his decisions seemed calculated and yet at the same time nonsensical and deranged all across the board. Chapman would later stand trial for the crime and he would be convicted. In the end, this aberrant assassin was more or less disowned by everyone that he knew, including formerly close family, with the exception of wife Gloria, who, despite being aware of every grisly detail surrounding Chapman's unsettling antics, continues to stand loyally behind him, even to this very day. This all perhaps only naturally begs the question then, does this prove Gloria to be a devoted, loving wife, who is, as she spoke in her vows, going to stand by her husband for better or for worse till death do they part? Or is this the mark of yet another unstable, perhaps also delusional woman who, like all the others we've examined, gets some kind of psychological payoff from the notion of cradling a crazed killer in her arms? You be the judge. There is a bit more to this story than just the fact Gloria Abe has stood by her murdery man, Mark, all these decades. Besides the mere notion that she has fearlessly always remained his most vocal advocate, his homicidal tendencies and all, another truly surprising part of this story for a lot of people is the fact that... Chapman and his wife are even allowed, get this, sporadic 44-hour-long conjugal visits, visits which they get to spend entirely alone and uninterrupted inside a trailer located on prison grounds. Years ago, the happy couple were interviewed about their peculiar situation. One thing they were asked is, of course, what do they do with their time? To which the wife replied that they make homemade pizza and that they usually watch the Wheel of Fortune on the television set they have inside the trailer. She continued to go into painstaking detail about their homemade pizza making. For example, the toppings Chapman likes, what toppings he used to like, and how many slices they each get. It was anticipated that readers would also probably be curious about the issue of sex, to which the couple became a little bit giddy and stated that their time together on the twin-sized bed inside the trailer was great. More specifically, it was leaked that at one time, their entire 44-hour time together was spent engaged in a sex marathon of sorts. I don't know about you, but this is a bit of knowledge that I would have been just fine without knowing. So everyone, that pretty much concludes this installment of the auditorium. If you're wondering why we covered these three specific cases today, I want to let you know that I have at least two more parts for this that should be coming up sometime soon. Don't forget to like the video. Also subscribe so you'll be able to easily navigate back to this channel later on. I hope that everyone has a wonderful evening and pleasant dreams.